Hello, everyone. I am Alicia Swamy, and I'm here with my co-host, Eric Johnson, Keely Severson, and we are Exposing Mold. Today, we have Bill Young. He is the owner of Mold and More Decontamination. He is also a member of the Indoor Air Quality Association, the IAQA, and his company provides services in mold identification, remediation, and air systems cleaning. So it sounds like you guys are offering a lot of services, which is really cool because usually everyone is sort of separate in this arena. Could you maybe talk more about just the inspiration behind starting the company? (laughs) It's a little bit of a story. I don't remember if I told you this when we were on the phone with Jamie, but um, what happened was my wife and I were out in Colorado. My parents had passed away and we were going to buy their house as a investment property. And while we were getting some paperwork done by the property management company, uh, there was a brochure on her desk said weapons of mass destruction. And it, it pictured guys in hazmat suits and all that stuff. So I'm just flipping through it. It's a little light reading. Well, while she's making her copies, she comes back and she says, oh, I have a story to tell you about that. So She goes back and finishes her copies. And she said, some time ago, I had a call from one of my tenants who said there's a mold issue. Now, You have to keep in mind, this is in Montrose, Colorado. It's the high desert in Colorado. And you wouldn't expect there to be a mold issue in an area like the desert, but there was. She called the local remediation company. They came out, took them two weeks to remediate the property, at which point nobody could live in it because what they used to eradicate the mold was more dangerous than the mold. Then they ended up turning that into a $250,000 pad in the desert because they had to tear the house down. Subsequent to that, she gets a call from another tenant who says, I was just rearranging the furniture in my son's bedroom, and on the wall behind the dresser, the shape of the dresser, it's all covered with mold. So she went over, she's she's thinking the whole time, I can't lose another house. This this can't happen. It's killing my inventory. What am I going to do? She gets over there. Sure enough, that's exactly what it is. Turned out in that particular property, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in The desert in Colorado, you generally don't run air conditioning systems because it's already dry enough. Uh, But you do run what's called a swamp cooler. And you add moisture to the air so that there's now something to evaporate and cool things off. Well, they improperly installed the swamp cooler up in the attic and it had leaked. And in the meantime, the former owner had had the house recited and whoever recited it didn't consider ventilation. And so as a result of that, the attic was full of mold, which then eventually made its way down the walls to the son's bedroom. So she does an internet search. She catches up with a guy up in Denver, Colorado, and he says, well, I'll be down this weekend. We'll take care of it. So the whole week goes by and she's thinking it took the other guys two weeks to destroy a property. How's this guy going to do it in a weekend? But he gets down there Friday afternoon. He gets the keys. He said, "Okay, I'll take a look around. Um, come back on Sunday. I'll give you the keys back and you can put the house back together, whatever needs to be done and move forward from there. So they go through the whole thing. He has to take out some drywall, obviously, because the drywall is covered with paper on both sides. And then up in the attic had to remove some insulation. They had to repair the swamp cooler. All this stuff happened over the weekend. She comes back Sunday afternoon. He hands her the keys back, says, you've got to replace drywall. You've got to replace insulation. Uh, You do want to get that swamp cooler corrected so that it ventilates and you want the attic to be able to ventilate because it's pumping moisture into that space. 
and we make our houses out of wooden paper. So it's a giant food source. Um, and then he says, and by the way, you shouldn't have torn that other house down. I could have neutralized the chemicals they used to get rid of the mold. Well, that's what piqued my interest. Anything that could take care of something on both the chemical spectrum and the biological sounded interesting to me. And at the time we were working with a lot of investors on the East Coast. Uh, this is in the run up to really what was the housing boom when it eventually ends up in 2008 with the economic collapse. <clears throat> but we were working with investors and we, we thought this might be a viable way to decrease their overhead in renovating and, and reselling houses. By the way, that didn't work. That business plan was a total failure because investors, number one, have no money. Number two, couldn't care less. And number three, just wouldn't get involved with taking care of the mold. They'd much rather cover it up. But it did open the door to a number of other avenues, which eventually led us to a physician in the Philadelphia area who was mold sensitive. Not only was she mold sensitive, her son was also mold sensitive. And they had a family-owned property that they were renting out portions of to different tenants, renting rooms and things like that. And she couldn't walk into the kitchen in that house without wearing a chem suit, a full-face respirator, and nitrile gloves. We went over and she explained to me that they had had one remediation done. There was uh, clear evidence of stachybotrys mold. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but stachybotrys doesn't produce the, the standard moldy odor, the musty odor that we recognize as mold. If you run into volumes of it, it tends to smell more like a dirty aquarium. Um, it's got a real nasty marshland kind of odor to it. Uh, and or maybe a kitty litter box that's been sitting around for a while. And when I went over and did the investigation, certainly the crawl space that they had remediated was full of stachybotrys mold because that's what it smelled like. And then it turned out the kitchen ceiling, uh, which was a not really a vaulted ceiling. It was an addition off the back of the house. Well, the, the flashing on that had failed. So they ended up with moisture in that ceiling cavity where there was very limited ventilation. And of course, fiberglass insulation holds moisture. It's, it's hydrophilic. And so that moisture gets into the, the fiberglass. It doesn't get absorbed, but it gets adsorbed. And it holds the droplets, keeps that space moist for a prolonged period, which of course is, again, houses are made out of wooden paper. When we got done with her remediation, she was standing in the kitchen and called me on her cell phone, no full face respirator, no Tyvek suit, no chem suit, no nitrile gloves. And she was doing fine standing right in the kitchen, which was the predominant area. So that really got us into working closely with physicians and, and patients who were having difficulty with that. Uh, Ann Corson, unfortunately, right now is in bad health because of a series of things that happened to her. But we've now picked up probably half a dozen to a dozen different physicians who refer us because it's been beneficial for their clients. So that's kind of a capsule view of mold and more. The other things that we do do, we do um, aero sealing. So after we clean and sanitize the ductwork, for all of our, our mold clients that are sensitive, we usually in, include cleaning and de 
and decontaminating the HVAC system. And then uh, we recommend that they seal their ducts because one of the problems is um, ducts, if you ever see duct tape around a duct, you can bet that it's not sealed because duct tape does nothing to seal ducts. Um, they should really change the name of it, but um, we can actually seal the ducts from the inside. So what we do is we aerosolize vinyl acetate that goes through the ductwork, finds the holes, seals the holes, but doesn't coat anything else. And that way you're not getting dust, dirt, mold spores, whatever is in the wall or in the wall cavity or in the joist bay where the ducts are passing through because they'll not only blow that dust loose, they'll act as a venturi and pull that into the ductwork and you're already past the filter. So it ends up going into the environment and increases the exposure potential. Um, in most American homes, the problem too is that the returns are simply stud bays or joist bays. And those are never really sealed and you're always pulling dirt in from the adjacent bay because of pressure changes. Or you're aerosolizing it because that pressure change has increased the pressure in a given bay and now it's blown it out into, through other areas. <clears throat> so we do aero sealing, and then we also do um, what's called aero barrier, primarily for new construction. And what that does is it actually seals the building envelope so that you have less air exchange from the outside. We get a lot of pollutants from outside. Uh, we have had one client fairly recently who didn't, totally like what we were doing in terms of investigation. So she hired somebody else who came with a particle counter and he tested various rooms with the particle counter, which is not a bad idea. Um, but she came up with like 4 million particles per cubic meter, uh, according to this report. And then I started looking at the micron size and, I, and she thought that was all mold. And I said, no, I said, what you've got are pollutants from the exterior. I said, you've got uh, ash from exhaust fumes. You've got uh, all kinds of outside uh, material that's coming in because of leaks around windows or in the framing. Uh, and, and, and I can tell that because the particle size is down below 2.5. If you're down below 2.5, bacteria are coming in, you're getting uh, soot and dust from, from the exterior. And those are, when they get down that small, then they're just going right into your system. That passes right into the blood. Yeah. Well, what would you then tell her? I mean, if if the problem is the outdoor air, what what sort of recommendation would you then make? Well, there isn't a whole lot we can do for that. Uh, and in, in this particular case, it was a condominium. So I said, not only do you have that complicating factor, but I said, this is a high-rise condominium building. You've got pipe chases and wire chases that are going from the basement all the way up to all the units at the top floor. Those are all infiltrating as well. So moving is your only option, and which is what they ended up doing. Whether their new digs are any better, I don't know. We haven't heard anything more from her. I'm not sure she was happy about the fact that I said, you have actually, based on your, your uh, particle counter readings, the mold spore counts, assuming that anything that is three microns or larger is a mold spore, you don't have a whole lot of mold there. Uh, and that was what we found with our regular testing there, too. I mean, we did surface testing. We did air quality testing. Now, I don't necessarily trust spore traps, um, but they are a, a quick and efficient tool for a snapshot. 
Um, I do trust surface samples, bulk samples, uh, dust samples that come off. We often use uh, Hertzme, Hertzme Q test for um, evaluation. Uh, and uh, and I said, based on what I'm seeing here, I don't see a huge mold issue, but I do see that there's some infiltration from the outside coming into the building. It's interesting what you said earlier about stachybotrys having a particular smell and it's not what you think. And it smells sort of like a cat litter box <laughs> because this is what a lot of people report. And this is um, Eric's experience as well. When um, we are being affected by stachybotrys and we're sick because of it, we then start to smell like a cat litter box or cat pee. <laughs> Um, so it's really interesting that not only is it in a home, but when we sweat it out, you are smelling that same stench that you're smelling in the home. Yeah. Yeah. We often will have people that, that what brings us in initially is that they'll go away for a weekend. While they've been living in the house, they didn't notice the odor. They go away for the weekend. They come back and walk in their front door and all of a sudden they're getting overwhelmed with this odor that they can't identify. Um, and it's, it's because it's been trapped. There's been no movement in the house. The fact that we, houses like to be occupied. Uh, cars like to be driven, planes like to be flown, boats like to be boated. Um, but uh, we, in a house, we need to move in that house because that moves some of the air. And, and I think we talked about the fact that we're, we're very much like pig pen in a peanuts cartoon. We have this cloud that follows us and there's not a whole lot that pulls it out of that cloud. It stays in our orbit until something on the outside acts upon it. So physics becomes a big part of this. And that's one of the reasons we got into the aero seal and aero barrier is because building science tells us that we have to really pay attention to these things. And we often don't pay attention to them. Um, chemical changes in the house just because of temperature change. Chemical changes in the house because the air purifier you're using is generating hydroxyls. Well, that's gonna change the chemistry of whatever else is in the air. And we need to take a look at what the impact of that is. What are your thoughts on air purifiers? Do you think that they're a good solution when there's active mold growth in a home? Good solution is kind of a relative thing. Um, I think that they are beneficial. <clears throat> and I'm not against natural hydroxyls. Hydroxyls do accomplish are you familiar with those? Okay, so if you have what's called an air scrubber on your HVAC system, or a, um, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the, the name of the original. They use it on, actually on the, uh, the International Space Station uses this to purify the air in the space station. And what it, what it is, is it, it's a UV bulb surrounded by three types of metal that create a chemical change. They act as a catalyst. And that generates hydroxyls, which are basically nature's hydrogen peroxide. So as the sun passes through the atmosphere, nature generates natural hydroxyls that I think, and nobody's ever verified this, but I think it helps keep down the bacterial load, the viral load, and the fungal load so that we can survive. Because if the fungus takes over, we're done. If I can uh, just throw in that one of those metals is titanium dioxide nanoparticles. And I'm not familiar with that. So if you want to enlighten me, because I'm always looking for more information. Oh, well, it, 
it actually started out with this uh, coating used to disinfect and deodorize kitty litter boxes. You know, the covered <laughs> Back to the boxes. kitty litter. <laughs> yeah, they actually put a, a UV light in a kitty litter box and coated the uh, cover of this, this litter box with these metals, including titanium di uh, dioxide, which is activated and becomes more reactive and puts out these hydroxyl radicals, which supposedly kills everything in the, the litter box and removes the smell. See, I can see that being a problem because then anybody who doesn't want to go pick up cat poop never picks up cat poop because there's no odor to let them know it's nasty. <laughs> <laughs> but that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Thank you. I think was what was also really interesting is when you mentioned these people went away and they didn't notice the smell and then they came back and they noticed the smell. Do you think there was some sort of like unmasking happening there? Like they were in that environment, they were masked to what was going on and then they were able to have some time away from it. And then their body is now sensing it at a higher level. Yeah. It's basically olfactory accommodation. So if you put on perfume, when you first put it on, you can really smell it. Then after a while, the only people that can smell it are the people that you meet, you talk to. Why? Because it's a new odor for them. Their olfactory system picks it up. So we accommodate to those things. And our system finally says, okay, I've got that information. I don't need to keep that information in my memory banks, as it were. I can just reject. I don't have to worry about that. It's already been cataloged. We uh, survive in our environment. Otherwise, odors would, um, would be persistent. We'd always smell them. Some odors are persistent, but things like this, um, what I found in COVID, during the COVID pandemic, people who hadn't noticed issues in their house suddenly had to spend a lot of time in their house. And as a result, they found the water leaks that they had. They found the mold growth that they didn't know was there because they hadn't looked around and all of a sudden it was drawing their attention to it. All of those things popped out during COVID because people were now trapped in their homes. And we had a number of remediations that we had to do where the moisture source was actually their HVAC ductwork during the air conditioning season when the duct was getting cool and the humidity level in the basement was still high enough for it to condense. And that's all the moisture that was needed. It didn't need anything else. And some of those, it was high levels of stachybotrys because it was persistent. Stachybotrys likes a lot of moisture, 80 to 90% moisture, not 100%. You get to 100% and mold won't grow. But you get it up to the 80, 90% and recognize that drywall comes with stachybotrys mold spores embedded in it at the time of manufacture. Not intentionally, but they show up. So a couple of years ago, I picked up a book called Never Home Alone. And it was really referring to the insects and mites and other things that are part of our residential setting that under uh, normal circumstances, being exposed to those isn't particularly problematic, but we tend to be such clean freaks in many ways that our system reacts strongly to them. And so you end up with people with strong allergic reactions to the various things that are, are present. Or they're, they're going to find insects in their house that tells them there's additional moisture. So anytime you walk into a, a basement area or something like that, 
and there's crickets, you know that there's moisture. If there's ants, you know there's moisture. So start looking for the moisture. Uh, if you find termites, certainly there's moisture. They like to have a drink with their meal when they're consuming your house. Uh, so those are all indicators for us when we walk into a property that there's a potential problem. And then it's a way to track down the source of that. Where's the moisture coming from? Well, you look where the ants are coming in. And especially if it's the sugar ants. Uh, the big carpenter ants, they'll, they'll do the damage with or without the moisture. But when you see the little sugar ants, then you know that there's a moisture issue someplace in that house. And you better start looking at it because the drywall has paper on both sides. One of the things we see up in a high desert where people think it's so dry that mold is never going to grow is that the cold north wall has a lot of condensation stored. <clears throat> and typically the entire southern part of the house feels fine, but you just go up next to the north wall and there's no water leaks, but you can feel it. Right, right, yeah. Well, a lot of people think you have to have a leak in order to have a problem. And in Pennsylvania, anyway, uh, now here I am in, in the Florida Keys. It's sunny, warm, humid, because I'm surrounded by water. I have the Florida Bay out here, and I have the ocean on the, to my back. Um, the relative humidity here for the two weeks that I've been here has been at least 20 points lower than what it has been at home in Pennsylvania the whole time with lower temperatures. Usually in the winter, when you get lower temperatures, you get dry, cold air from the north. And that dry air dries everything out and the, and the humidity drops. But over the last decade or so, we've seen humidity levels staying pretty consistent throughout the year. And if you don't build your home properly and find a place for that water to go, it's going to pose a problem. And so we get involved with a lot of exterior cladding failures. Uh, houses that are built usually started out as a stucco failure. Uh, those are the ones that make the news most of the time. Uh, the number one area in all of North America for stucco failures is Vancouver, British Columbia. Not quite sure why they're building with stucco in Vancouver. It's a mystery to me. Um, but the second in all of North America is southeastern Pennsylvania. And it's because we are persistently humid. Uh, not that far from the ocean, not that far from a variety of water sources, and our humidity levels stay up, and then the building materials begin to absorb that moisture. Yeah, I remember the uh, stucco was hailed as the great new thing, and uh, in California, they started building all these stucco houses. They look great, yeah. but uh, unfortunately, it's a sponge. It is. And there's one uh, particular building that made the news, the uh, San Martin County Courthouse, where it was, it was a mold trap before it was ever finished. It was, they couldn't even occupy it. Yeah. And part of that is not so much that the stucco is terrible, because if you do stucco correctly, and that was probably EPIS that they were building with, which was the, the new formulation, a lot less concrete. And they were really using more gypsum and gypsum will absorb moisture. And as a result of that, and, and the fact that they didn't, they didn't take care of where the moisture has to go. You're going to have bulk moisture that enters the property at some point. And so you've got to give it a path. If the water's there, that's fine. Give it a path, it'll leave. The other thing is you have to have the proper ventilation so that if you do get moisture in those spaces, 
there's some air movement that's going to help dry it out. Uh, we found a lot where the southern face is our problem. In, your, in the high desert, the north side is the big problem. Um, we found that in some of ours, the south face is the problem because people will have a brick front or a stucco front or a stone front, and that mass absorbs a lot of heat. And then if they use vinyl wallpaper on the inside, it can't breathe. And you end up with condensation in between and all the materials in between, your sheathing, everything else is going to develop mold. And then most of our builders, and it's probably true around the country, they use OSB, oriented strand board, as your exterior sheathing. The problem with that is, is that the capillaries that would spread the moisture out and make it easy to evaporate only go to the edge of the flakes. If it only goes to the edge of the flake, then it can't get rid of the moisture, which means it then has to, it has to go somewhere, ends up going into the matrix of the wood. So you now have five-eighths of an inch of wood in fibers that are glued together where you're getting mold growth right where it wants to grow, in the dark. And you end up with huge problems even on the interior of the house because of the added moisture on that exterior sheathing. We just had one the other day. In fact, I was on my email this morning with the homeowner. Um, if houses were built in the late 1950s, early 1960s, we often find that they have gypsum sheathing. It's basically drywall that they're using as exterior sheathing with no vapor barrier of any kind. And you end up with high moisture loads on the exterior, air infiltration from the exterior to the interior, or infiltration from the interior to the exterior, or exfiltration, I guess you'd say. And as a result of that, you get temperature differentials and you end up with mold growth on that sheathing. And in this case, because it's basically drywall, the moisture load is going to be high enough for it to be stachyvitreous. And that's what we found when we did this investigation with these clients. And now the question is, do we get the exterior redone completely and remove all that sheathing and replace it? Or do we just tear the house down and start from scratch? And it's kind of a flip of the coin because you're basically replacing the entire house when you do that whole exterior. And that's what they're going to have to do. Kind of reminds me of when... Um People used to make um, glue tiles in their bathroom directly to normal sheetrock. And that yeah. was a really bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody that has sheetrock in their, in their bathroom needs to get it replaced regardless. Um, and in fact, what we recommend is using Ditra. So then you've got a complete moisture barrier. You could use... Um, hardy plank or, or uh, concrete board, something like that, you'll have less chance of mold growth. But I wouldn't say none because we've been in places where hardy has developed mold growth. Wow, I didn't know that. I remember um, they switched over the code so you had to use green board. But one of the drawbacks with the green board is the uh, old stuff it was green board. It was the uh, mold resistant wallpaper on one side but it was standard on the other. So you, yeah. they would glue the tiles to the green portion thinking they were safe, but no, the water would soak through to the other paper and stachybotrys would grow on the backside of this. Yeah, because yeah, the gypsum will transport the moisture. 
uh, in any given, in fact, we had a, a house that we did, it was a stucco failure. So we were called in to do the forensic testing for the law firms that were handling it. Uh, they, if for a year, year to year and a half, they were rebuilding the exterior of this house. The builder came in and said, yep, we goofed. And they brought in their contractors and they redid the exterior. Oddly enough, they replaced it with stucco, which I thought was a little crazy, but that's what they did. Um, And then after the year and a half, they decided, oh, our bathroom is dated. Our master bath is dated. So while we've gone through all this disruption, let's just continue it for a little while and get the master bath redone. And then we'll be all set. and We won't have any repairs that we have to do. And when they started working on the master bath, they removed drywall on the exterior walls. And somebody just happened to pull the fiberglass insulation back and look at the brand new sheathing on the outside, which was all covered with mold. And it was covered with mold simply from the moisture that was generated within that bathroom and the air movement right through the drywall to the exterior walls where there was a major temperature differential. Boy, this is tricky. You know, and I've always lived in a really dry climate, so it wouldn't even occur to me that the south side of a house anywhere would ever be a problem. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was really I, w- I felt bad for him because the original builder who had had made some mistakes disappeared. And so the homeowner was a second homeowner and they were saddled with a $250,000 remediation of the exterior of the house. And that didn't count the work we had to do on the inside because they had used vinyl wallpaper. And so pass the word. So a, a number of builders that we work with now have right in their contract that you can't use vinyl wallpaper in your house. I want to switch gears and talk about IntelliGuard. So I reached out to the company and uh, uh, you are a vendor of IntelliGuard and you also use their products um, and we were trying to see if it would be useful for the hypersensitive people, us, you know, where we can fill mm-hmm. minute amounts of contamination. Um, and Keely can definitely speak to her experience, but maybe you can give a little bit more information on this product that you guys are using for decontaminating a home. Well, just to give you an idea of the history of it, um, it was originally developed following the sarin gas attack in Tokyo where Um Shonrikyo, a cult in in Tokyo, decided to make a statement. And what they did is they brought into the subway system canisters of um, sarin gas and then released it on the subway. Number of people died from it. Um, Not everybody, many people were sickened by it. They managed to stop the train, get people off. Um, But our US government looked at that as a national security issue and said, if this happened on any of our mass transit, we'd be in trouble because we can neutralize the gas. But the stuff we're using to neutralize the gas is not exactly healthy for people. And so in high traffic public places, we need something that is going to be, number one, effective against both biological threats and chemical threats. And we need something that's going to be inherently biodegradable so that we're not leaving something behind that's going to create toxicity. And so they challenged Sandia National Laboratories to produce this. The first iteration came out in the 90s, was used um, predominantly in Iraq because of Saddam Hussein's use of chemical weapons. And in fact, they think 
uh, at least there's some speculation that one of the things that Saddam Hussein did was harness the power of trichothecene toxins and then found a way to aerosolize them. And so what they would find is that periodically their alarm systems would go off for a chemical threat, but then when they would come in with their more robust testing equipment, it was gone, which meant one of two things. Either it didn't actually exist and there were false alarms off of their, their walking around alarm system, or it was dissipating. Like it was passing through, you'd be exposed, and then it would move on with the air. Um, a number of troops came back with what they called Gulf War syndrome. And those guys would exhibit symptoms like what you experience. They're, they're exposed to the toxin, they, their exposure is sufficient that they're having this cascade of events and none of the symptoms follow a diagnostic chart. So of course, our medical system said, well, if it doesn't follow the diagnostic chart, they're gold, because these are mostly men, and men don't generally complain about much of anything. We just say, yeah, we'll, we'll work through it. Um, and they would sit there and say, these guys are just trying to be gold bricks. They're just trying to get a, a pension from the federal government. They're just trying to rip off the taxpayer. <clears throat> Until finally enough volume of this was happening that it started to look more like Agent Orange than uh, a scam. And then they started looking into it and they think what they got exposed to was trichothecene toxins, which would then accumulate in the system. And if you were going to weaponize a mold toxin, that's the one you weaponize because it does nerve damage, liver damage, kidney damage. I mean, it's just, it's an awesome, powerful toxin um, generated by something that most of the time you can't see, which is, I think, fascinating. Uh, so they... Uh, Asked Sandia Laboratories to come up with something that could control both of these things. And Sandia went, started their experimentation. The first iteration was called DF-100. But it didn't kill weaponized anthrax fast enough. They needed something that was going to be faster and much more effective. And they were looking for a seven-log kill on weaponized anthrax. So they went back and retooled it. The, they changed the surfactants a little bit, which gives it longer dwell time. And that's really the key. So if you remember during the uh, coronavirus pandemic, I, I would walk into a grocery store and they'd have these poor kids out there with their wipes, wiping the handles of the shopping carts because that's going to stop COVID. Now, beyond the fact that it was air, airborne, not, not surface-borne most of the time, that was kind of a useless thing, but it made everybody feel better, except when you really looked at it. They wiped it off with the towelette or whatever, or sprayed something on it and wiped it off. But all they did was move whatever it was from one side of the thing to the other. There was no dwell time. Uh, even Clorox bleach has right on their label, 10 minutes, it has to stay moist. Well, nobody lets Clorox bleach stay moist for 10 minutes. We can't, we can't, we can barely do it for a minute. That's just too long a period of time. And so without the dwell time, you don't have the kill rate. Uh, so what this does is the surfactant keeps it in place for a longer period of time. It evaporates more slowly. Uh, we can apply it as a uh, foam, a liquid, or a, um, a fog. It's a cationic product, so it's positively charged, which means bacteria and viruses are all negatively charged. Fungus is negatively charged, so it attracts them, even if they're airborne. <clears throat> and 
then destroys it, goes in, penetrates through the spore coating if it hits a spore. Um, and then the hydrogen peroxide can act on the, on the biological inside. It has a third part component, which generates a little bit of parasitic acid when it's mixed with the other components. It's called diacetin. It's a food grade additive. Uh, that one we definitely always recommend for if you're doing a meth lab or a fentanyl lab or some clandestine laboratory like that, uh, then you want to use the diacetin because you get, you've got the long dwell time and you've got a real penetrating power there that's going to break down whatever chemical bonds might be present. Um, and that's, we can, we have studies that show that it breaks the methamphetamine down, even in the, the drywalled walls where it's been absorbed into its basic elements, none of which are toxic. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All-American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorship. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. If I can just interject something here, I take people on a uh, mold history tour to some of the early sick buildings where stachybotrys was found. And they speculated this might be involved in chronic fatigue syndrome and Gulf War illness. So I <laughs> simply took people with Gulf War syndrome, soldiers, um, survivors of Operation Desert Storm, to these stachybotrys buildings to see if they reacted to the trichothecenes. And consistently, they always did. That makes perfect sense. Did you did you write up a white paper on that? Because that would be a powerful white paper. Uh, yeah, I've written it in a number of places. Not a, a white paper, not a position statement. I was trying to get the uh, assistance of researchers to work with me on that. And they absolutely refused to do so. But I've presented this at places like Stanford where they tell me that I'm crazy. <laughs> okay. So then they're saying that those people who are physically reacting aren't actually physically reacting? Believe it or not, they say that um, I set up a, a mental reaction by warning them beforehand that we were going to sick buildings. So it's their own fear response that it's a driving force. Uh, the old nocebo effect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the problem with that is that if that's what you believe, how about if you actually run a double blind experiment and see what the reaction is? Don't tell them where they're going or take some of those materials from that building and expose them to that in with a control group that does that wasn't exposed and see if there's a change. Rather than this is why I, I hate being labeled as an expert, because to me, experts, if they believe their press, experts end up losing their curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to me, 
we don't know enough about the universe to be able to say yay or nay. We only know what we know, which is a very small portion. Alicia is smiling because I've railed against the very term expert for that precise reason. <laughs> yeah, but yeah been... some people that, that heard about what I did set up their own double-blind experiment. They had somebody else take objects from a contaminated place that, uh, and labeled them so they wouldn't know which was contaminated and which was not, and tried to identify them using their senses. And they were remarkably successful at picking out in this double-blind trial. And they presented this to Stanford, where also it was rejected. Well, that's partly because Stanford operates off of the uh, current medical system. And one of the things that I found with most of my clients and, and in discussions with them, and again, again this is anecdotal, but um, when I talk with them almost to a person, they've gone to a physician, described their symptoms, the doctor sees that it doesn't fit his diagnostic chart, usually they're a male, uh, and they say, well, it doesn't, doesn't fit the chart, therefore, uh, it's all in your head or it's your hormones, as though males have no hormones, right? And so you end up with a lot of frustrated people who they're feeling something and you're totally discounting that feeling. Uh, they're experiencing something. It's not just uh, my feelings are hurt or something. There's a physiological change in their system and you're discounting it. And they are generally angry and they're, they're angry for two reasons. One, it's cost them a lot of money to get that diagnosis because most of the doctors they go to don't take insurance. And I always tell them, we, we have to find you a holistic physician because if a DO might, might pick it up because doctors of osteopathic medicine tend to be uh, more open to total physiological response, systematic, systemic response. Um, but if you've got an MD, forget it. The most they talked about mold in medical school was somebody brought an orange in that had a green spot on it. And then they decided that was mold. Other than that, they didn't talk about it. Well, I, I didn't mean to derail the conversation about your product, which is very interesting because uh, as a cationic uh, substance, it would attract and remove the negatively charged molds and viral particles. But what about denaturing the toxins? Uh, as far as we can tell, with the, the single study that was done, um, they're effective on trichothecene toxins, aflatoxins, and ochratoxins. Those were the only ones that were tested against. And it eliminated those toxins during those studies. Now, nobody's done a follow-up because it's really expensive to do these studies. And as a result, nobody's bothered to, uh, I mean, IntelliGuard doesn't have reams and reams of money to be able to do this. Um, part of this product is also used for firefighters. Firefighters have a 60% chance of getting cancer because of their occupation. Uh, they walk into a room and in that room you have all kinds of products, most of which are petroleum-based. So our fires used to burn at 1,500 degrees max because we were burning wood, like cotton, stuff like that. Uh, and there was not a huge chemical change that occurred during that combustion. Yes, you could die from smoke inhalation, 
there was carbon monoxide that was produced, but you weren't getting the kinds of chemical signatures that we get off of fires today. Um, it's not unusual to have a great deal of sodium cyanide show up at, at the scene of a fire and it can range out from the building, whatever is burning, to the people surrounding it. In fact, we had uh, in Rhode Island a few years ago, they had a fire in a local pub and their alarms were going off on the pumper truck on the street for cyanide that was coming out of the fire. And so the, the guy who's running the pumper, who's not wearing a Scott pack, is being exposed to that plus the carcinogens off the exhaust from the diesel engine that's running on that fire truck. Uh, so what we came up with was um, the same product. It's Easy Decon, but it doesn't have the Easy Decon label because it's, it's an EPA thing. If you're killing biologicals, then they have to prove it as a pesticide. So um, when, when the federal government uses it, it's always Easy Decon because they don't differentiate. They don't care. Um, when it's being used by remediators, then we have to use easy decon. If you're remediating properties where it was used as a meth lab, then it's a different EPA label. And because of the difference in the label, the cost drops dramatically. And we, we've, we've dealt with this. So that what we came up with was a product called Dauphin Decon, which refers to putting on firefighters gear and taking it off. Uh, and it just got UL approval that actually exceeds the NFPA 1851 standards for chemical removal at the scene. So as they walk out of the fire, we bring them into a caution area. We foam them with this because they've got all their gear on. So we foam them and then have two guys who are in respirators remove that gear, bag it, and we can reduce their, their chemical exposure significantly. Otherwise, the gear will off-gas those same chemicals for up to 96 hours. So if you think that most firefighters in, in the vast majority of communities across the country are volunteers. These are guys who on the weekend or all week work a job and then on the weekend they're fighting fires and they take their gear and throw it in the back of their minivan or they throw it in the back of their car and their kids get in the car. Well, that's just a sealed box that all this gas is coming into. That means your kids are getting exposed to it. And you'd be amazed at the particulate that follows firefighters. Uh, they did a study, I'd have to find the link for it, but they did a study that showed firefighters who were exposed to a, a powder that then fluoresces when you hit it with a black light. Um, they were going home playing catch with their kids eight hours after they left the fire station. They had showered and went back home and they were throwing the football with their kids in the backyard. The football was covered with the powder. Their kids were covered with the powder. They were exposed to this particulate, which would be the same as the soot that's on their turnout gear. Fortunately for us, we got an education from Dr. Antonio Gotti, the nanopathology researcher. So we got a description of how these nanoparticles, these uh, 
volatile part particulates can chase you around. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and it's the same with mold, you know, and, and well, that's why I'm very much into recommending that buildings be built so that you control the air that's coming into that building. They need to be sealed and they need to be tightly sealed. And then you bring the air in through a filtration system, like an ERV or an HRV, depending on whether, where you are in latitude and longitude, um, and a variety of other things so that you're controlling the air that's coming in. All this, all the pollution, we just did a house with Aero Barrier. House was built in 1975. When we did the blower door test on this, current code in Pennsylvania says a new building can't have more than three ACH 50. You can't have more than three air changes per hour at 50 Pascal. This house was doing between nine and 10 ACH 50 when we started. I'm sorry for the background noise. I do want to hear what your, it's what, uh, and I'm sorry, I forget her name. Keely. <laughs> Hi, um, I did want to hear your experience with the product. Well, first I want to say thank you so much for helping us arrange to get that to me. That was really awesome. And it came at a really important time for me. It really, it really helped me. Is it okay if I explain a little bit about my sensitivities to kind of set some context? Okay. So I am very sensitive. All three of us are. And I really resonated with the story where that you just told about the firefighters showering with the powder that was spreading even after someone had showered and it getting all over the kids because um, I am so sensitive and it feels like some of my exposures are actually coming like third and fourth party like that, where it's like something can be on an item or on a person that comes into my house and then I can react to that item very strongly or that item can touch my kids and then I feel it on them or it touches my kids and then they're in their beds and then I feel it in their bedding. And a lot of that has been happening. I have exposure sources that I have not been able to get on top of. One of the exposure sources is that um, my oldest child is in a middle school that's so moldy and contaminated that I can't tolerate his school clothes to come inside of our house and they can't be washed with anything. Another exposure that I was having a really hard time with was one of our cars that we have now since gotten rid of in the last two weeks. But before then, any clothing that was worn inside that car was like radioactive to me. And, I, and even if my husband wore the clothing, then I couldn't tolerate him. So there's all these things coming into my house where I'm feeling like I'm bombarded from every area and it's spreading in this invisible way and it's getting on everything, okay? So that's kind of what I've been dealing with on top of being somebody who's so sensitive that I would be reacting to the invisible powder that no one else can see on the item. So that was kind of the context in which the cleaning products arrived to my home. And I had already made the decision. I am so freaking done replacing all of this bedding and laundry and clothing because 
I had basically resorted to just being in disposable clothing because this stuff was spreading onto everything and nothing that I was washing it with was getting it off. And it was such a problem. So the first thing I did was I washed everyone's bedding because my I was to the point where I was walking in my kids' room and my room and I was reacting just from what I could feel on the bedding. And it's, it's happened so many times and I've replaced it so many times and it spreads consistently that I'm just done replacing it. It doesn't do anything. It just contaminates later so I washed the bedding and I realized I will say for my sensitivity it does not remove 100% of what was in the bedding but it absolutely makes the blankets tolerable so I can wash the bedding and then I can go into their room and I don't feel it in their room anymore or, and they can sleep in their beds without them feeling like they're reacting to it. Because my kids are also so sensitive where, where they'll say their beds aren't comfortable for them because they're reacting. And so I would say the bedding probably didn't clear 100%. But for us to even get it to the point that we can use it and we don't feel like we have to replace it just to get a little peace from our reactions... That actually was a really big improvement because we hadn't been able to use anything that that would even get it off really that much. The other thing that changed for me since you sent this is I'm no longer having to be in like disposable clothing. So I like I said, I was having so many source points of things getting cross contaminated that I couldn't keep on top of it that clothes would just go bad after a couple wears to where I would just give up on it and I couldn't save it. I haven't had to get rid of any clothing because I've been able to, to, wash, to wash them. So I did recently discover a source point that I did not know about and that is a window that has been causing a lot of reactions. I only bring that up to say some of the contamination I've been feeling might have also been from that source point. But I just, I emphasize my sensitivity in all of the ways things are cross-contaminating because that's a sensitive issue for people who are canaries like me. And in a time of increased sensitivity, I would say it did improve my ability to function. And that is a really big statement coming from someone like me because I'm the one who's always telling everyone else that they're lying for saying something works when it doesn't work for my level of sensitivity. So that's like, so that's a strong endorsement for me to say like, maybe it didn't get 100% off of everything, but I could live. I could live my life normally. Okay, well that's, that's good news actually. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Now, I have worked with a, a, that home inspector that I mentioned earlier. Um, he, he, with one of my clients said one day, there's two types of windows. There's the ones that have failed and the ones that are going to fail. That's a guarantee. Uh, our windows don't hold up. If you want to get really good windows, you have to buy European style windows because, and they're very expensive. But I'm glad to hear that that's, that's made a difference for you. Um, just out of curiosity, what's your exterior cladding in your house? I have no idea. Yellow. <laughs> Yellow. Okay. <laughs> well, that narrows it down. You got to watch that yellow siding. <laughs> um, well, you might want to take a look at your exterior cladding, especially if you've had a window failure of some kind, because what can happen is 
if the flashing isn't proper on the windows so that it takes the moisture away, uh, and you have a failure of the window itself where it may penetrate the cavity, the wall cavity beneath the window, um, you can have a really problematic mold growth. Again, you probably have fiberglass insulation and fiberglass is hydrophilic. It will absorb and hold moisture and it'll keep it up against the building materials, all of which are organic matter. So it's a giant food source, your whole house. There's not a question of if there's mold in one of the windows. I just don't know how much there is. Right. But I've been walking in and I've been feeling it immediately. And before I realized the window was bothering me, I was over attributing everything that I was feeling to just reactions from like the cross contamination sure. from my son's middle school. And then I finally realized, no, there's actually a, a primary problem that I've been ignoring, yeah. thinking it's something else this whole time. So it's just, for me, the only question is, how much mold is in there? Is it just a tiny colony that feels really big because it doesn't matter how much it is to produce this large amount of feeling or is it, or is it a whole wall? Lucky for me, um, my husband is, he works in windows. And I don't know if the company is European, but it's only sold through this one distributor in the United States and they have like a lifetime seal warranty. So hopefully we'll be in better shape after yeah. they install them and they are going to check the wall cavities too because I'm pretty sure there's something a little bit in the wall somewhere. Okay. There has and then make sure, make sure they establish really solid containment wherever, wherever they're working. That's imperative. Um, we'll have times when they call us in to do destructive testing because mm -hmm. they don't know exactly where the problem is and they want us to cut holes in the wall. And I said, no, I will not do it unless you want to pay us to set up containment and put in negative pressure so that we can control where all the particulate goes. Because otherwise, I'm risking cross-contamination. And I'm sorry, mold spores are really, really tiny. Anybody who ever says I can see mold spores in the, in the sunlight in my, my window here, uh, they don't know what they're talking about. Because I honestly perfect. didn't even consider that for window removal. And I'm surprised that I didn't because like, I've made the mistake of digging into mold without any of cautions put up and that was actually a really like a permanent a bad idea in life yeah. and health so i know that that's not a smart thing to do yeah so that's something i, I would just caution you to do if if when they open that up uh you find that there is a problem with your interior drywall or with your sheathing then that needs to be addressed and probably from the outside I always tell people when we're doing an exterior cladding issue, I would rather have you open the outside. I realize it's more expensive, but you're going to have to do it anyway. And then I can take a look at what's on the inside walls from the backside, and I can know more clearly what I have to come in and take care of. Uh, and we can actually treat it from the outside to make it that much safer when we do the work on the inside. Um, so you, you really have to watch that. You might want to have somebody come in and do some cavity testing and take sample inside the wall cavity. Oh, well, I can just go smell every wall. And tell you. Yeah, <laughs> if, you're, if your sensitivity is sufficient that you're reacting to that location, then you may as well just assume that it needs to be isolated. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point, yeah. I mean, we, we used to have people who would say to us, customers who would say to us, well, we'll remove the material if you can just come in and treat. And we would let them get away with that until the a few times in, we've decided, no, they never remove enough. And you always have to remove more than you think you do 
and the moisture goes farther than you think it does. So those are things that you really want to take a look at. And, and they really do need to establish something. And I'm not talking painter's plastic containment. I'm talking six mil plastic sealed to the ceiling and, and whatever, build up a, a wall around the area that they're working on. And they really should either set up an air scrubber that's going to put positive pressure on that space and let it blow out when they take the window out or run negative pressure. And of course, once you take the window out, now you're going to be pulling in all that exterior air. But you really need to do something to control that particulate. And you need to not be there when they do it. People were saying, well, you can denature toxic mold with ammonia. So everybody would spray ammonia all over the place. And sometimes they would get good results and a lot of times not. So my point was, if they were true that this ammonia actually denatured the toxins, you could just drench everything with ammonia, kill the mold, deprive it of water, make sure that it's all dead. And by completely drenching it, make sure these toxins are denatured. And from that point on, you wouldn't need to do remediation. You wouldn't need to do anything. That's it. Problem's gone, except it wasn't. So even so, that tells me it, it did not work. It's not exactly as good as denaturing the toxins as people think. Maybe it was just removing it. So in terms of your product, you know, we want to know, okay, it's better at removing it, but is it having a denaturing effect? Well, even though we don't have the ability to get researchers to do all kinds of testing on it, our anecdotal experiences, if you use it and then somebody can enter the, the location and not have a reaction, that's very compelling evidence that it does denature some of it. And it does denature the mold itself. Now, part of the issue with the ammonia, and this is true of people who use bleach too, uh, the reason bleach doesn't really do the job is because it has no surfactant. You need the surfactant to break down the surface tension of whatever it is you're trying to destroy. And ammonia by itself won't do that. Just like um, we went into a pharmaceutical company in California where they had just cleaned with a phenolic. Uh, that's one of the things that they'll use in clean room settings to clean the space, they'll use a phenolic, which is basically Lysol as a phenolic. Um, problem is, is phenolics tend to build up biofilms over time. And we came in and we foamed the area that they had just cleaned with Easy Decon, and you couldn't believe what came up out of that floor. And it was all because of the phenolics they'd been using. Uh, now we couldn't get them to switch over to Easy Decon and that's partly because of the way the system is set up. Um, nobody wants to make a decision and, and break with tradition because if you make a decision and something goes wrong, you're gonna get blamed for it. Uh, so we have a lot of um, inertia to overcome when it comes to using this product. But certainly what we brought up off that floor, which had just been cleaned, was evidence that uh, this was breaking down the biofilm that had been left behind. Well, the uh, concept behind ammonia is that uh, the epoxide ring circular structure of a mycotoxin, which is held together by its molecular bonds, only retains its shape as long as the structure is intact. And that's because of its negative charge. So if you have an electron donor, 
you can insert an electron into that epoxide ring. It loses its <clears throat> magnetic structure that's keeping yeah. it together and it flies apart. So as a cationic um, substance, perhaps it's, it's possible that this is acting as an electron donor and really denaturing the, uh, breaking down the ionophore structure of the uh, mycotoxin. Yeah. And of course, it's hard to get researchers to look into this, but for the time being, if the product works and we no longer react to something, then that's a good indication that it's doing more than just removing it. It's probably denaturing it as well. Yeah. And with her washing clothing, and I, I wanted to ask her how much she was doing, you do have to be careful because if you put in the normal washing quantity of easy decon into your washer, you will have a room full of bubbles because it foams up tremendously. So you always use a smaller quantity of the easy decon. It'll still do the job. Um, we used to sell it to uh, an appliance company because they were their, their customers were coming in complaining about the front-loading washers and the mold growth that occurs in front-loading washers. And if, if the customers used a what was then a freeze-dried form of the product, it took care of the mold in the front-loading washer. And then the company that was freeze-drying it for us, they stopped freeze-drying it. We've never replaced it. It was a tremendous tool because it would have made a huge difference and just add it the same way you would add any other detergent to your laundry. Uh, but it was in a powder, so it made it easier to handle and easier to transport. But if you're going to wash things, use maybe a quarter cup instead of a half Oh, but we're really excited that um, at least Keely was able to notice a difference in yeah. clothing by using this product. So with that <laughs> level of, of success, we're curious, you know, we would have to probably chat with Jamie, like what would be the next steps? What could we do oh. as an organization? How can we provide this product to other people who are dealing with what we're dealing with so that way they can make their lives more livable? And Jamie's got a lot of experience using this as a laundry product. Um, her son plays football, and the only way to get the odors out of his football gear, apparently, is to use Easy Decon. She also cleans her shower every day with it, and it does a tremendous job of getting rid of that, the soap scum that is left behind, which is actually providing a food source. And usually when I find mold in showers, if it hasn't made, made its way to the, the underlayment behind, whatever that is, whether it's drywall or, or party board, um, if it's just because of the staining on the, on the tile or whatever, it's usually soap scum. Uh, that's why I always tell people keep a, a squeegee in their shower and you get as much water down the drain as possible. That's less that has to evaporate in the space. And it reduces the likelihood of mold growth within the shower. So just curious, you're down in Dr. Mercola territory. Have you tried approaching him? I have not. My wife would like me to, I think. <laughs> well, um, you know, he's uh, married to Aaron Healthnut News. And they had a mold problem in their own house. Ah. So they should be on the lookout for things like this. Might be worth a, an approach. Where is he located? I know he's in Florida, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't know what part. I think it's the Atlantic side. 
but I never never found out exactly where. Yeah, I just remember she was she's very active on social media, and talked about how the house was making them sick, and she's the one who figured it out, and led the the people to the toxic mold, which was kind of bizarre because he had already done educational seminars on mold, and he didn't believe it. I think he did an interview with Dr. Richie Shoemaker at one point too. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Shoemaker and I were on the radio together a number of years ago. We were talking about, it actually started out as one radio program, which then moved into two radio programs, which then moved into a third radio program with him. Um, and we had some, some really interesting discussions about the effects, because one of the things I was talking about was the fact that we expect kids in an inner city to learn when they go to school, but they're living in, and I was, at that time, I was thinking in my mind, the houses like in North Philadelphia, Ron Temple University, where uh, these are tenement structures, and they are heavily mold involved because the landlords aren't doing anything to maintain the houses. And then the kids are going to schools that were built during the Great Depression to keep people working. And they're full of mold. And then their major food sources are corner stores with potato chips and candy bars, not actual grocery stores. And we talked about the fact that that exposure, that, that chronic exposure, not acute exposure, like you walk into your son's middle school and you react because it's moldy. That's an acute exposure. I've had those where I walked out and had to go find some fresh air because even places that didn't look that moldy, I'd walk out and I could feel it. And I'd go grab a cup of coffee and sit out in the sunshine and a little fresh air and it would go away and I'd be all right. That's an acute exposure but if you have chronic exposure so that no matter what you do, you can't get away from it, like the car that was involved, the window that's now a problem for you, those things are chronic exposures. And even at a very low exposure level, you're going to have significant effects because you never get away from it. And that's really a critical piece. There's a big difference. And we don't do a lot of studies, even with chemical exposures, on chronic exposure. We look at acute exposure. Right. You know, my, uh, my story is in four of Dr. Richie Shoemaker's books. Really? Yeah. Um, especially Mold Warriors and Surviving Mold, where I tell the story of mold at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome, the uh, famous controversy that baffled Dr. Gary Holmes, the Center for Disease Control and researchers, because they couldn't figure out why teachers in certain buildings were getting sick and, and staying sick. And they would treat the school as an acute exposure, but they didn't take into account the fact that they were carrying contamination home with them and it was still a driving force in their illness. Yeah. And what I proposed to these researchers is this is the problem. It's contamination. In order to get better, you have to break that chain of contamination and conduct a strategy of what I call extreme mold avoidance. Yeah, yeah, which is really difficult to do in, a, in any of our locations because 
it's pervasive. But the very fact that this effect exists and is unappreciated by the medical profession is something that was very concerning to me. So that's why I put my story in his books and went to Stanford to tell them, don't treat this as just an acute exposure and test the schools. You've got to take the other factors into account as well. Yeah. Almost like if we, if you go out and eat pizza and it's got anchovies on it and you never ate anchovies before and then afterwards you get sick and spend time driving the porcelain bus, um, then you blame it on the anchovies. And it might not be the anchovies. It might be a whole host of things that led up to that. That was all it needed to take it over the edge. Well, the, uh, the failure of most people to recover after their terrible mold experiences is they're not taking contamination into account. And the major source of contamination mm -hmm. is clothing because they go into sick buildings and they're not aware they've been drenched with the stuff. So if your product can actually denature this, remove it from their clothing, this would be absolutely huge yeah. for, for people to do. It addresses the most critical aspect, the most problematic, difficult thing for people with uh, conducting mold avoidance to master. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, we've also run into issues with um, where it's not just the mold exposure, but it's also the bacterial exposure that occurs in combination with the mold. Now, Dr. Shoemaker has recently um, changed his position on the importance of mycotoxins and switched over to, to actinomycetes. Yeah. Are you familiar with his work on that? A little bit. Um, not as thoroughly as I have been on the mycotoxins and... Uh, and things like that. But many of our clients have actually switched labs for their testing to uh, envirobiomics, which also tests for actinos and uh, the bacterial load that's present as well. And it makes sense that they could be a problem. I mean, if you take a look at um, anthrax, for example, is a sporing bacteria that happens to be gram positive. Um, so it's not as much of a, an issue as gram negative would be, but the, um, the fact that when you treat anthrax, if you give people antibiotics, you can give them a, a bolus load of antibiotics, you'll kill them because as the bacteria dies off, it releases toxins and those toxins will cause death. And what we don't know is how many other instances of that occur within nature where the whatever's in the background also, as you start to destroy whatever the pathogen is, does that then release a toxin and do damage further um, during the, the treatment process? Well, you brought up stachybotrys on a number of occasions here. Uh, what's your reasoning for attaching particular importance to this species, other uh, than the trichothecene producer? Right, right. Yeah. Mainly because of the trichothecene toxins. Um, when we do a survey of somebody's mold levels, we're not just looking for stachybotrys. In fact, most of the time, if I'm doing air samples, I don't look for stachybotrys because I'm not going to find it. When I do surface sampling or when I do dust samples and things like that, then it'll show up. And one or two spores aren't particularly problematic. But um, my concern with the toxins with those is that because it does such a broad spectrum of damage, then if you do develop this sensitivity, then it's gonna be really problematic for you. And most of the clients that we've run into who have 
super sensitivity like Keely. It's it's something that um, it doesn't take a lot of exposure to get the reaction. Um, and the way that they really started running into Stachybotrys was in the 1930s in Ukraine, the farmer's horses were dropping dead from lung hemorrhage. And it was because of exposure to Stachybotrys mold that was in the mounds of hay that they were feeding on. And that information informed the CDC when they went to Cleveland to take a look at why these children were coming in with a lung hemorrhage. Um, and they determined then that it was Stachybotrys. However, the paper that was written the, in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly the following week discounted that. Well, in my opinion, they didn't discount it because of the clinical findings. They discounted it because some insurance companies called somebody and said, this is going to be problematic because we carry insurance for a bunch of landlords. And those landlords are going to get hammered with lawsuits, and we don't want to get hammered with lawsuits. So they didn't make their decision based on clinical findings. They made their decision based on economic findings. Right. They didn't really discount it. They just said inconclusive, needs further study. Right. And right. then and didn't then do the further didn't study. Do any further study. <laughs> Yeah, and America doesn't pay attention. We do more studies than any other country in the world, and we pay the least attention to them. Yeah, it was Dort Dearborn that really started the one spore of Stachybotrys rumor. And people are really confused about that. But because Stachybotrys is such a large, heavy spore that hides out where it's very difficult to find, you don't, you rarely find it in uh, air sampling. Yeah. But it's affecting people anyway. Yeah. So the, the experience oh, remediators. The thing is, the toxin. Yeah, the toxin. Yeah, they, they would go into a place and they'd sport. go, "Well, we were maybe we didn't find it, but if we detect any at all, we know there's got to be more." Yeah. The, the the other place where we tend to find it is in because it's such a wet, sticky mold, and the spore is so large that it doesn't generally go airborne. But when we do get it in airborne samples, uh, it's usually because somebody had a bunch of boxes packed in their basement on the floor, and then they decided to move them out so they could sell the house. And so they picked the boxes up and carried them all through the house, picked them out, and that aerosoled all those spores that were on the bottom. Wow, you're really hitting some hard memories for me because I got sick in Hitler's bunker in 1976. The army unit, it was in a old building that was going to be Hitler's communications headquarters for Operation Sea Lion. And down in the basement armory, it flooded and everybody in my unit started getting sick. In fact, 70% of my unit went out on sick call. So we called the um, Division of uh, Biological Warfare Investigation to come take a look. And they didn't attach any particular importance to the mold, but they said, well, it can't be good, so clean it up. Guess who gets detailed to go down into the basement to clean it up? <laughs> and I'm picking up these cardboard boxes. The bottom is black with mold. And within a couple of minutes, the um, sergeant in charge of the detail looks over at me and says, Johnson, you better get out of here. You're going to die. I mean, I was obviously fighting for my life. Yeah. That, that was my acute exposure. And I never recovered from that. And we've had some instances like I had one. I don't know if you're familiar with the 
Philadelphia Main Line, but it's one of the wealthiest areas in the country. And what happens there is some of the older families have an estate, they'll sell the house. It's a one-story colonial, and they'll uh, they'll tear down the top part of the house. The walls and roof will go, but they'll leave the decking over the old basement. And you do that because there's a tax benefit. If you leave the old decking, your tax rate doesn't change. And so they'll leave that decking. They'll add, put an addition off the basement, put new lumber in there, all of which is much more vulnerable than old lumber. And then they'll build a two-story residence on top of that and sell it for a million and a half, two million, three million dollars, whatever it might be. Uh, we had one where they did that and the realtor called me to do an inspection and testing because the buyers were concerned about mold. And they said, we don't think there is any, but oh, that's fine. I walked downstairs, looked on the back of the stairs going down and it was all green, which is either penicillium or aspergillus or some combination of the two. And I said, well, there's no question that there's a mold issue here, but I can't get into the crawl spaces because they've got them sealed off. And I, I'm not authorized to open those up. So I came back a second time after they gave me the authorization. We opened those up. I looked in. It's an earthen floor crawl space with insulation that's falling down. And I said, without looking at anything else, I said, you got a mold issue here because the insulation's falling down because of the additional moisture. Friction can't hold it in place. And it's falling on this earthen floor, which is letting up additional moisture and enhancing the problem. And, but, and I said, so we put together a proposal and that included removing all the insulation, which was, had only been recently placed there by the builder. And he didn't want to lose the insulation. So he said, no, I'm going to bring in my crew to remove the insulation. So he sent in a couple of guys on a Saturday morning to remove the insulation without personal protective equipment, nothing. And within two hours, the ambulance was there picking them both up. And they both had to be admitted to the hospital for an extended period because of mold exposure and fiber exposure from the fiberglass insulation. What an incredible story. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I feel like we've gone beyond the time frame we, we usually allot for these interviews. And it was such a great conversation with you. You are just a wealth of knowledge. You're definitely cut from a different cloth than a lot of these mold remediators that we talk to. And again, we really appreciate you and your instrumental role and in what you played in helping us get the the contents from IntelliGuard to be able to test that for the population that we're serving. So if anyone wanted to work with your organization, where could they find you? Our web address is moldandmoredecon.com. So that's M-O-L-D, the letter N like in Nancy, M-O-R-E. D-E-C-O-N.com. And there's a bunch of information on there on all the aspects that we do. Um, and then if you wanted to reach me, it's Bill at moldenmoredecon.com. Fantastic. We definitely will be keeping in touch for any future projects or any ideas that we may have. And feel free to contact us anytime as well. Um, if you have any questions or would like to provide any special information. Yeah, you're welcome. And I will be passing on your information to my clients as well so that they have another resource. Um, it's always good to get accurate information 
and there's enough inaccurate information out there that it can get really confusing. And especially if you're fighting with, with the issues that you're fighting with. I know I had some health issues a few years ago and, and I started working through the, the medical system trying to figure out how to get to people and they made it so convoluted and I was not feeling all that well to begin with. It makes it that much harder to get to the answers. I just have to interject to say, I think that is the most important thing is that people find us before they find a bunch of people who lie to them or give them the wrong information or they waste a ton of money because people are fine. It's the people who haven't given up the search and honest information that are making their way to us. Well, I'll make sure your information gets out there. Fantastic. Thanks again, Bill. We appreciate you so much. And we'll probably have you on for a second interview just because you're just so knowledgeable and we appreciate your expertise. Thanks again, everyone. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. Interested in purchasing IntelliGuard's Easy Decon DF200 solution heard in this episode today? Please send an email to info at exposingmold.org for more information. We want to thank you for listening. Just sending a friendly reminder that what we say is not intended as medical advice, but information to expand your thinking surrounding common situations and issues within the mold community. If you like what we do, please support us by making a donation in the link in our show notes. We also provide one-on-one consultations, products to help with symptom management that you can find in our shop, and a private membership group filled with a supportive community of peers working together to heal from toxic mold. Exposing Mold is a 501c3 nonprofit and every donation is tax deductible. Thank you so much for your support and we look forward to providing you with the most honest information out there on mold and mold issues. Please visit exposingmold.org for more information.